This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are our first-time listener, and what we do for the next hour is we take people's questions as they've been studying Scripture, or maybe they're facing a challenge in their personal spiritual life or ministry, and they want biblical counsel. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will. It's good to be here the week after Easter, and uh, just a thrill to have celebrated with God's people across the world the resurrected Lord. We celebrate it every week at Community Bible Church, but we always put a special emphasis on it on Resurrection Sunday. In either case, if you want to call us locally, it's 843-525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible Line, tbl at wagp.net. Well, Rick, a number of questions have come in, so let's go ahead and we'll get started. Indeed, Pastor. So you did mention this past Sunday was Easter, and we did get a question regarding your Easter message from Fred in Beaufort. He says, in your message, you stated Jesus suffered when Satan abused him. I didn't understand. Could you explain how, and if so, when? Well, it's, it's a good question. Um, so we were in Psalm 22, which is really an incredible psalm. It's a psalm that is written about a thousand years before Christ. And it's like a witness standing at the foot of the cross, uh, describing in detail not only the sufferings of Christ, but the glories to follow. And so Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1 that the Old Testament prophets wrote of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That is not only his death on Golgotha, but the fact that he'd rise again, ascend to heaven, and then come back someday to rule and reign. And those pictures were given in the Old Testament. And then after they wrote it, they had to go back and study it to see what person the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit within them was indicating that he was referring to. So I'm in Psalm 22, and he says, um, the psalm opens, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, Christ quotes that from the cross, and he is abandoned by God. He is forsaken of God as he dies, not just physically, but spiritually. Uh, he speaks a little bit later, uh, deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Uh, the term dog is a term used by Jews to describe Gentiles. And uh, Christ was uh, not only handed over by the Jews, but Gentiles also were involved in his crucifixion. And so man hated him. They went by, they wagged their head, they uh, gave insults. In fact, some of the very phrases in Psalm 22 are used by those uh, sitting at the cross mocking Christ. Literally did they know that they were actually fulfilling prophecy. And then here in verse 21 of Psalm 22, save me from the lion's mouth. And the lion's mouth is a metaphorical usage to describe Satan. And so we speak of a roaring lion who goes about seeking someone 
whom he might devour. And so the Bible teaches that the power of the pit, the power of Satan was very much present uh, there on that day of the crucifixion. If you remember in Luke 22, uh, Jesus uh, said to the Pharisees, while I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And so this uh, particular time frame is known as not a literal hour, but he's describing that time frame. He throughout John's gospel would say, my hour is not yet come. My hour is, hour is not yet come. And then he comes to a point where he says, my hour has come. And uh, this is the hour, the power of darkness that's at work. In fact, in that same uh, uh, chapter in Luke's gospel, Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12. And so Satan's very much involved. He uses uh, Judas as a pawn almost, but he was a willing pawn. He was not a puppet. He chose to open himself up to evil for greed. And uh, he pulled off uh, the arrest of Christ so that it would lead to his crucifixion. And so Jesus, when he speaks of the power of darkness, he's speaking of those principalities, those powers, those rulers who hated him, who abused him, uh, who were engaged. And of course, you know, the Bible reminds us that uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, that Satan is energo, the Greek text says, he's energizing the sons of disobedience. And he was certainly in full force there uh, while Christ was being crucified. And I'm sure maybe he thought he had a victory, but the scriptures say in Colossians, for instance, that he disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public, a public, public spectacle of them having triumphed over them by the cross. So they thought they won uh, as they abused the Lord, but they hadn't won. Christ was in charge. It was all according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Okay, very good. We just got a call from Kirk in Beaufort, and he is trying to do God's will. He says he's in good shape and athletic, but is convicted about occasionally smoking a cigar. And uh, from time to time, uh, he watches some movies that uh, God convicts him about, and he, he just wonders, what can he do about that? Well, it's a great question. Kirk, I think uh, the Lord has spoken to you clearly. You feel bad about occasionally uh, smoking a cigar, but many now in the Reformed movement would say, have an occasional beer, smoke an occasional scar, cigar, light up a, a pipe, and it's just wrong. Uh, look, um, ever before, uh, you know, we made it uh, on the side of a cigarette package by the Surgeon General of the United States that this would be harmful for you, People knew it was harmful. Even in Spurgeon's day, he would smoke an occasional cigar, and his fellow pastors said, you shouldn't do that. That's a terrible testimony, and it's bad for your health. Of course, Spurgeon didn't live probably as long as he might have. It took down his health. And so, uh, not to mention, what what a terrible testimony, because it basically says um, that this is something I need to make me happy. And the flesh always wants to be fed. And so you are to starve the flesh and feed the spirit and let God so delight the inner recesses of your heart that you don't need to smoke a cigar. But, you know, it's quote unquote cool. And sadly, you know, Rush Limbaugh, he was a real cigar smoker and made it popular in America. Beyond the cigarette, he made the cigar popular and would often speak of it on his radio broadcast. It appears that Rush, praise the Lord, came to faith. His brother is a avid believer. David Limbaugh wrote a fantastic book on the resurrection 
that I gave to a Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem, and he's just dumbfounded by it. He did a super job on it. But Russian appearance came to faith, but look what killed him. It killed him. Uh, he, he should not have smoking and smoke and, um, you know, sadly. Anyway, um, yeah, movies, look, there's trash everywhere. Just trash everywhere. These are the days that we live in. We're living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. These are days where evil is triumphing, at least it appears to. Uh, The powers of darkness seem to be winning. But Jesus is coming back, and the more you see this smut and this evil behavior and this upside-down morality that is being propagated across our nation, and not just through the United States, but across Western Europe, throughout the world, you should uh, like key up and realize, hey, we're, we're living in the time frame that Jesus spoke of and all the more to be passionate for Christ. So find some good movies and entertain yourself on that. Don't entertain yourself on trash. And if there's not a good movie, quote unquote, maybe you should read a good book. You know, people don't even read books anymore because all their spare time is enveloped in watching movies. And uh, we have an ignorant general public and certainly an ignorant evangelical church because they don't read. And so read and study to show yourself approved of God. Good question, Kirk. Um, I might add one thing. Having smoked myself for 17 years, praise God, I finally quit in 1990. That gave you this radio voice? Yeah, (laughs) probably. (laughs) Right. I know it's tough. I know it's tough. But uh, I would recommend this gentleman maybe go to the Search the Scriptures website and uh, look up for living the spirit-filled life. Good, good, good word. And um, my sense, though, Rick, is that he's not like hooked on this. It's more of oh, this is a cool thing to do. Mm. But but when you're dealing with someone who's like hooked on nicotine, that's a process to get off. And people ask me, do you, do I have a problem with nicotine? Or no, you know, if if God can use that to wean you off because it's a drug, but at some point you have to go cold turkey. And it generally takes 30 to 60 to 90 days, depending on the person, the amount of nicotine intake, to get it out of your system. And then it's just association and habit. Absolutely. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Chris from Hiram, Georgia writes, I've heard that Ezra arranged the original order of the Old Testament books, and Jesus confirms it in Luke 24-44. It is also said the Apostle John ordered the New New Testament books. These orders were later changed by Jerome in the 4th century. It would seem that if the Jews had a certain order to the books, that it would be wise to keep that order. Is there really any significance to this or the original order of the books? Well, Chris, this is a great question. I have a course. It's called Bibliology. It's not for the faint of heart. It's some 500 pages long. And in that course, I walk through all the logistics of uh, how we got our English Bible. And, of course, you reference here what Jesus said on the Emmaus Road. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that in all, that all things which are written about me in the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So sometimes the Jews would summarize the Old Testament, what they call the Tanakh, in a couple of different ways. Um, earlier in the same gospel, there is a parable that's unique to Luke where the rich man dies and he goes to uh, Hades, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom, what we call 
Old Testament paradise that became New Testament paradise that became the New Jerusalem. Uh, and he's there because he's a believer. And of course, the rich man in hell is very conscious because in hell, people uh, are very conscious of their surroundings. It's not that they just die and they cease to exist as Seventh-day Adventists have falsely taught, as Jehovah's Witness falsely teach. No, there's conscious torment in the place called Hades, which someday is thrown into the final resting place of the lost called the Lake of Fire. And uh, there, uh, the man begs, hey, look, I've got five brothers. Um, I beg you that you send him, Lazarus, to preach to my five brothers. You know, if Lazarus comes out of paradise and he begins preaching, he'll get people's attention. That will be the miraculous, and they'll they'll repent. And Jesus actually says if, if they don't respond to Moses and the prophets, so that's how he summarizes the Old Testament on this occasion, Neither would they respond if someone was raised from the dead. And, of course, it was a short time later that Jesus literally raised Lazarus from the dead. Many believed, but many continued in their unbelief. In fact, they tried to get rid of the evidence, the Pharisees. They not only wanted to kill Jesus from that day on, they wanted to kill Lazarus. Uh, Maybe we can get rid of the evidence. We won't have so many believers. Um, So let's think about the difference between our Hebrew Bible in our English Bible. Our Hebrew Bible, we often call it by the Jewish term, the Tanakh. They don't call it the Old Testament because they don't have a New Testament. So they just refer to it as the Tanakh. And the word Tanakh, T, it begins with, stands for the Torah, which are the first five books of the law written by Moses. So Jesus spoke of Moses and the prophets. And then Tanakh, N, you hear the N sound, that's for Nevi'im, that's the Hebrew word for prophets. And then there's a hard C sound, it comes out, Tanakh is spelled, by the way, T-A-N-A-K-H. And the K sound is for, um, you've heard the word Kesed, it's actually like a K-H sound. Uh, and so that stands for the ketuvim or the writing. So they take these three Hebrew letters, T and K, and they add the vowels and they get Tanakh. Now, they divide their scripture into three parts, as it were. They take the oldest part, Moses. They take the next oldest part, which is the prophets. And then they take the third oldest part that was inspired and then canonized, the, the Nephi'im, the writings. Um, Now, it is interesting that in the designation that Jesus gave that you referenced in Luke 24, he mentions not just Moses and the prophets, but he mentions the Psalms. So he doesn't say um, Moses, the prophets, and the writings, but Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And there's a reason for that, because in Jewish thinking, very often the first word of the first book in a section stood for what would follow. So even as you open the Bible, Barashit bara Elohim, in the beginning created God. And Barashit is the first word. And so Jews call the book of Genesis Barashit, or the book of Exodus in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, it begins with these words, Vi Ela Shemot. And so Shemot, they call the book of Exodus Shemot which is the first major word there in the first sentence of the book of Exodus. And so it's a reference to those who are um, 
who are the names that and so the focus is on on names and then so on all the way through Leviticus Farika and so forth the called and uh, so when you say Psalms that's the first book in the writings and so it becomes uh, a simple way in which to summarize the final section so that's how they did it they did it based on chronology only in our English Bible we divide it based on four sections, <coughs> excuse me, we have our Old Testament in terms of the uh, historical books, we've got the Torah, but we have four major sections, and they're divided a little bit differently. First, by genre. Genre is the kind or the type of literature. It might be narrative, it might be poetry, it might be prophecy. So in a macro way, sometimes you'll hear theologians speak of the macro canonical divisions that's done on genre that's the big picture the kind of literature and then within the kind of literature they have micro divisions or micro canonical divisions and that's based on chronology and on authorship and so which book was written when so we have basically four divisions in our in our bible uh, beyond the law and so uh, it's not a bad way to divide it. Is the Jews' way is better? All I know is in the end, we have the same book. Uh, we have the same Old Testament books. There is no difference at all to try to change it now and to divide it according to the Jewish Bible after, you know, the invention of the printing press, which came, of course, in the uh, 17th century where Bibles were readily printed, and now to change what we've been doing for, you know, uh, over 400 years would be, I think, very, very difficult. I think the main thing to remember is we've got the same Bible, and that has not changed. By the way, Paul uses the same division in Acts 28 right at the end of uh, that book. So good question. I appreciate it. I wouldn't get bent out of shape over it, but I think it's helpful to know that there is a difference in terms of organization, but not a difference in terms of content. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Paula from Colorado Springs, Colorado, writes, concerning Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus gave his 12 disciples authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Is this authority the Holy Spirit? Judas is included among the 12 in verse 4. If Judas was never a believer, how could he receive this authority from Jesus? Well, it's kind of an interesting question. If you remember, Christ uh, concludes the Sermon on the Mount with some really chilling words that I think people need to hear because he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And a parallel account, it was a different day, but nonetheless a parallel account Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say? And so to claim that Jesus is your Lord, Lord, and to repeat it twice to affirm that you have a personal relationship with him and for a lifestyle that denies it is going to be a big shocker someday. So why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
I, I think it's really fascinating the illustration that he uses because he doesn't go for some ho-hum kind of testimony. He goes for the most dramatic kind of testimony you might find where someone preaches in his name, does exorcisms in his name, does miracles in his name, but he makes it very clear that in spite of their you know, profession of faith and their polite address to him, they're still unbelievers. And so your question that you posit is an interesting one because, number one, the Bible is clear that unbelievers can do miracles, and there are illustrations in the Scripture of that very thing. Uh, we have unbelievers, for instance, in the book of Exodus, chapter 7 and verse 11. Let me just turn there so I can read it to you. Seven eleven is an easy verse to remember. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same thing with their secret arts. Do you remember that on that occasion when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they do some confirming miracles that they're being called of God and and then the magicians take their rods and turn them into snakes. But then, of course, Aaron's rod swallows up their snakes. And then, of course, the magicians turn the water into blood. But unlike Aaron, they were unable to reverse the process. And if you remember, Moses brought forth frogs, and then the magicians brought forth frogs. But they couldn't get rid of the frogs, but Moses could. So there's one a difference between God's miracles and Satan's is in that there's a supernatural dimension that always supersedes the power of God. So uh, he, they did some supernormal things, but not in the truest sense, supernatural. And so their message, of course, was connected with error. And so one of the things that you always want to watch for, for these so-called miracle workers, is first, what is their message? And Jesus warned us that at the end of time that false Christs and false prophets would come and do all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles. And he's speaking during the time of the Great Tribulation and the context, not that it couldn't happen today, but he said, you know, don't don't follow them. They'll be very deceptive. And, of course, that's the pinnacle of what the Antichrist does. He comes with false signs, wonders, and powers, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 teaches. And he'll teach a false message that's contrary to Scripture. And of course, you read in the Revelation, if you were with us in our Revelation series, we hit on this topic in a couple of different places. One in Revelation 13, uh, we're told, and he deceives, there's two beasts. There's the first beast called the Antichrist. And then he speaks, beginning in Revelation 13, 11, of a second beast who's the false prophet. And so he's uh, what John the Baptist was to Christ, the false prophet is to the Antichrist. And the scripture says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs, we're talking about miracles, Samion, which was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so he does miracles. In fact, one of the miracles that he will do that will open the eyes of the Jews is he'll do a miracle by which um, the Jews will say, this man can't be our Messiah because he's performing an act of idolatry where he makes the image literally speak there in the temple of God, and they will realize that he is a false prophet. 
So with all that said, it is clear that the things that Jesus speaks of, unbelievers can do. Miracles are done by unbelievers in Scripture. Uh, People preach in Christ's name who are lost. Uh, Unbelievers cast out demons in Christ's name. You have an example of that in the book of Acts. Uh, I've just flipped over to Acts chapter 19, and it says, Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Doing what? They were casting out demons. Uh, In ancient Israel, if you had at least 120 uh, Jews who were living for the Lord, practicing pious Jews, you could form a little Sanhedrin, and the chief Jewish officer was called the chief uh, Jewish priest in that particular town. And there was one such guy named Siva who had seven sons who were involved in demon exor- exorcisms. And then we are told here in verse 15, and the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Jesus I recognize, and Paul I'm acquainted with, but but who are you, man? And then the text says, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, they had been casting out demons up to this time, but on this particular occasion, they used the name of Jesus, and they have a bad experience with his name. But the fact is, is that unbelievers can do all of the above, and Jesus doesn't deny that, but their life on the inside had not fundamentally changed. So, with that said, let's ask if believers can do the same. So, I'm giving you a big answer, but both sides need to be looked at. And I would say, as a general principle, absolutely not. Not to say that God can't do miracles. He can. But does God do miracles the way he did through the apostles and those specific apostolic delegates? And the answer is no. Uh, Listen to what Paul's argument is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in verse 12, he said the signs, or you could say the miracles— uh, it's the one of three words used for miracles in the New Testament. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So Paul, if you remember, is defending the fact that he is a true apostle because some had come into the Corinthian church and said, Paul's not a real apostle. In fact, we are. He's not. He's a Johnny-come-lately. We were around way before Paul ever started following Jesus. And Paul said, actually, they're the false apostles. I'm the true apostles. And here's one certain definitive test in that the signs of a true apostle were performed in your presence while I was there. Paul's argument is meaningless if any old believer can do the miracles that are unique to apostleship. And to be an apostle, among other things, you had to have seen the risen Christ, which is impossible today. You had to have been personally selected by him. And if those two things were true, then you would have the marks of a genuine apostle as you did the miracles that only an apostle can do. So I would say to you that passages like Mark 16, those are uh, designated to the apostles. You'll drink poison and you'll not die and so on. Um, Some would say that shouldn't be a part of Scripture uh, because in some manuscripts it's not there, but the New American Standard rightly includes it, and I think there's good evidence that it was part of the inspired text, and we should preach it, but it doesn't change anything. Good question. appreciate it. Let's go on to the next. Alberto from Savannah is on line one. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. 
Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Bogey and Rich Porchner. Hey. I was listening to uh, Dr. Carl Bogey, My Nation Under the False God, you know, Part 3, Book of Revelation, when you teach that uh, all the nations will be worshiping the, the Antichrist. I heard a lot of ministry to teach the same thing, but I heard other preachers say that, that, that not all nations will align with the Antichrist, that they call them sheep nations and then goat nations. So not all nations will go along with the Antichrist agenda. So what do you think about that? Well, let's define some terms here, and so context is everything. When you see the word nation, it's, uh, it's the Greek word ethne. And so we often think of nations in terms of, uh, you know, Germany and France and England and the United States. But actually, technically, while certain geographical locations may have originally been representative of a certain ethnic group, the term is ethne, and it speaks to different ethnic groups. And if you think of the United States of America, uh, we're covered over with all kinds of ethnic groups. There was a whole time when people came from, quote-unquote, the old country, from all the European nations, and they migrated here. And in many of our communities, in even in the early part of the 20th century, there would be multiple languages spoke. You can still go to cities like Boston today, and there's a Chinese section, and there's the Irish section, and there's the Polish section, and there's the Italian section. And, and there was a time when those were the principal languages spoken in those communities. But what has survived is maybe some of their restaurants and some ethnic perspectives. But when the Scripture speaks of the nations going against him, he's talking about all the various people groups of the world who are represented, obviously, in various geographical spots. And so sometimes even the writer to the Revelation, John the Apostle, speaks of certain locations that people are going to come from to attack Israel as they gather there in the plain of Megiddo. But it also teaches equally that there's coming a time when all the various tongues and tribes and nations will be saved. And so God is going to complete the Great Commission during the time of the Great Tribulation. And what we've been trying to do for 2,000 years, and we should not stop doing it. We need to function and live like we are the only believers on earth. And our goal, not only individually, but corporately, should be to reach every living person with the gospel, preach the gospel to everyone under creation. But Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, Some people say, hey, you know, we're almost there, and we've just got X number of people groups, must be close to the second coming. Well, there's still a ton of people groups that haven't been reached, especially in the 1040 window, but they are going to be reached during the time of the Great Tribulation. Anyone and everyone who wants to hear the gospel will be able to hear it. How? Through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, they will hear it. They will also hear it, the scripture affirms, through the two witnesses who will be there on the Temple Mount, and even God for the first time in the history uh, of of Christianity since the church was born at Pentecost, he'll use an angel. In this age, he doesn't use any angels to preach the gospel, but there'll be an angel that will fly through the heavens and he'll preach the eternal gospel to everyone 
um, on the earth. And so John, when he has this vision, he sees these people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are assembled. Why? Because they're converted during the time of the great tribulation period. So there are folks who have never heard the gospel before in clarity and power who will hear it during the time of the great tribulation period. Uh, People who have heard it prior to the rapture of the church will not have a chance. They will fall under a judgmental delusion in which they will believe what is false. But there will be scores of people, an untold number, that are likened to the sand of the seashore who will come to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and Courtney from Lincoln, Nebraska writes, My 27-year-old adult son began having episodes of sleep paralysis during graduate school. They are similar to night terrors, but he feels as though he is awake and aware but unable to move. All of these episodes include demon-like creatures sitting on his chest in the corner of his room or chasing him. They last several minutes and end when he's fully able to wake. I've never heard of this before, but apparently it's a relatively common medical condition. He is the most level-headed logical person and shrugs them off as something neurological that happens to him when he has been lacking sleep. But the demonic aspect of these is a bit unnerving. He does know the Lord. I'd be interested to know if you've heard of this before and if you have any thoughts about possible spiritual implications. Yes, many times in my office in the last 40-plus years I've been in ministry, people have expressed to me this uh, reality. It's called sleep paralysis. It's a kind of scary thing and that you know you're asleep and you try to wake up, but you can't. I mean, most people have had at least some degree of sleep paralysis. Maybe you're in a very fearful dream and you want to do something, but you can't. You just can't move. It's like your body is frozen. Well, you can take that and you can multiply it several, several times. And people have uh, a heightened sleep paralysis in that they are in this dream that seems so real. And sometimes they have what's called a false awakening. Uh, they, they think they are awake, but they are actually not. They're feeling the pressure of the blankets around them, maybe some light in the room through their eyelids. And, uh, and then when they fully awake, they realize that they weren't awake at all. Now, um, what are we to make of it? Is it purely neurological? Well, there is a whole lot of it, I think, that is neurological. And there are some reasons why sometimes people without these demonic creatures and dark shadowy figures that people sometimes describe to me and they say, is my son or daughter demon possessed or whatever? I think very often people have these scary dreams um, and there's nothing directly related to it spiritually like Satan is attacking them. But look, there's a lot of sin and sinful thoughts and even sinful dreams that come in a person's life because of the kind of things that we put into our heart. And so if you put trash into your heart, if you put violence into your heart, if you put dirty images into your heart, then in your subconscious you might dream such things. And I would say that very often if you go to the medical websites, WebMD, Mayo Clinic, whatever, you can look up sleep paralysis and you'll discover that very often people who are under high stress 
will experience this. So what I would say to your son, I'm assuming that your assessment is correct, that he is a believer, is that he should end his day probably not watching TV if he is. Because for many Christians, sadly, that's the way they relax. They just watch TV. Why don't you encourage him to go to bed listening to a sermon or a spiritual podcast of some sorts or uh, reading his scripture or get a Bible app where he can listen to the scripture and begin to fill his mind more with godly things. And I think what you will discover is that some of these frightful dreams, especially with you know, demonic kinds of images will begin to flee. But look, these demonic kinds of images are filling movies. And Christians, sadly, are in violation of Philippians 4.8, and they're watching these movies. And if you don't, you're just called an old fuddy-dud and a legalist when God says that you're to set your mind and heart in the things that are pure and right and true. And, and two, I should add that if someone is using alcohol— that this is a problem. I've spoken to people where they use cough medicine to help them to go to sleep. And sometimes you need cough medicine. And if you have a bad cold and you, you, all you can do is cough, but some people just it's habit forming. You look at the side of the bottle. I forgot what it is. 60 or 70% alcohol. It's pretty high. Isn't it, Rick? Uh, it's about 25%. Okay. But it's still so a lot. Maybe yeah. I over, overwrote it, but, but, but I actually, when I have trouble sleeping, I take yeah. uh uh, Sleep Quill, which is the same company, but it doesn't have any alcohol in it. Yeah, and there's other natural components um, that that people can take that would mimic, uh, like eating turkey on Thanksgiving. Uh, there's a chemical in the turkey, uh, tryptophan. tryptophan. Yeah, tryptophan yeah. and melatonin also. Yeah, melatonin is an is a natural way that sometimes people have trouble sleeping. They'll they'll, they'll take that, and that helps them to go to sleep. But if they're using alcohol, again, sadly, it goes back to the first caller. You know, people smoke in moderation, they drink in moderation, and then they wonder why they have some of these problems. And they are really in violation of Scripture. We shouldn't drink uh, alcohol to get a buzz, to get a high. Uh, For these kinds of reasons, we're in clear violation of Scripture because we're using strong drink. And God speaks not just against drunkenness, but against the use of strong drink. And so in some of these instances where people have described this to me, I'll say, well, do you, you know, have a, yeah, I like to have a beer with my pizza. And why don't you cut that out? Why don't you just stop drinking? And you may see these things dissipate and sure enough, they do. So I don't know your son. I don't know the particulars. Uh, He may not do any of those things, but he may be under a lot of stress and he needs to step back and meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. The psalmist says, meditate in your heart the truth of Scripture. Let, let, let that begin to fill your heart. Tremble and do not sin. Put away the evil things. And then meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. And you may find that the kind of night's sleep that you want will be fantastic. So unless your son was involved in the occult, and those kinds of things. And I'll ask those questions. You know, people think it's my son or my daughter. You know, he's 15 and he's having these hard dreams and he sees these demons. Unless they're involved in the occult, I don't think you should think that this is some satanic indwelling or oppression 
But there can be some attacks that come that are spiritually related that we shouldn't simply write off 100% of the time as a medical problem. And we need to step back and ask carefully, what is my lifestyle like? What am I putting into my body? What am I putting into my mind? And sometimes there's some dots that be can, be can, that can be connected that need to be severed. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sue from Beaufort writes, in the parable of the sower, I've heard it taught that the seed choked off by the thorns was someone who was saved but not living for the Lord. I've also heard it taught that the person is not saved. The only one saved in that parable is the one sown in the good soil. I'd like to know which is the correct interpretation. I believe that only the seeds sown in the good soil are those who are saved. Well, it's a great question. And what you want to do is look at it in the time frame in which it was originally given. And this will really help you to understand it. Um, Dr. Pentecost, Dwight Pentecost, was one of my professors. And I took a specialized course with him just on the Gospel of Matthew And he would tell us the key to understanding Matthew 13 is to realize that it comes after Matthew chapter 12. So in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus describes um, an event that happens um, through in the Pharisees' hearts where they are committing potentially an unpardonable sin. Now, people can debate whether or not they cross that line on that day. But what they were doing is they were attributing evil, evil power, Satan's power to be emanating from Christ's life to be able to do the miracles. And Jesus shows the absurdity of that and actually demonstrates how twisted their theology is. And then he gives them a a warning. So Matthew 13, you find the kingdom parables. And so you find not just the parable of the sower, but a whole group of kingdom parables that come together. You have the parable of the sower. You have the parable of the tares and the wheat. You have the parable of the mustard seed. You have the parable of the leaven. Uh, You have the parable of the costly pearl, the parable of a dragnet. And so he is really giving two parallel thoughts in each of these Uh, parables. On one side, you have unbelievers and the fact that they reject Jesus. And on the other side, you have believers. And he's explaining why the kingdom, the literal kingdom that God promised to bring through the Messiah was going to be delayed, but it would not be canceled. And so in the parable of the sower, much like in the parable of the tares and the wheat, in the parable of the mustard seeds, you, you, you've got two groups of people. And so he is describing unbelievers. Why is it that some unbelievers do not respond to the gospel? And on the first three soils, he gives different reasons. And then on the fourth soil, he describes a soil that uh, represents a good heart and the seed of God's word is sown and The heart is receptive. Some bear more fruit than others, as Matthew indicates uniquely, some 100-fold, some 60, some 30. So not all believers bear the same amount of fruit in their lifetime, but nonetheless, there will be genuine marks of conversion. The idea that this was different types of people rather than two types, uh, 
there was a guy, his name was Pat Morley. I knew Pat because we were both um, on executive ministry staff. He was the director for New York City, and I was the director for Dallas, Texas, and I met him at a meeting in uh, in New York, and Art DeMoss had died, who started executive ministries, and his wife hosted a meeting, and they brought in the directors from across the country from major cities, and he later wrote a book called Man in the Mirror, and it was just it was lousy theology. He was a businessman, and unfortunately in that book he mishandled God's Word. And so he said the first soil was an unbeliever. The second two soils were what he called the carnal Christian, and the fourth soil was the spirit-filled Christian. He actually got the idea, sadly to say, from Bill Bright, uh, the founder of Campus Crusade, but he ended up taking that idea that Dr. Bright presented in kernel form, and he wrote a whole book on it. Now, that's not to say that in the second two soils, you couldn't have uh, some marks of someone who is living out of fellowship with the Lord, but you can definitively say that on the first two soils, he's definitely speaking of an unbeliever, because when you look in the parallel account, which he did not do, uh, in Luke eight thirteen, when he describes the rocky soil, he says those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. He's obviously not teaching that you can lose your salvation because he's affirmed the eternal security of the believer throughout his teachings, including Luke's gospel. But he is describing those who have an emotional response. There's joy. There's an intellectual response. They acknowledge the facts of the gospel, but it never reaches the heart. There's never a willful response. It's like getting married. You can know emotionally you're in love. You can know intellectually that the person you want to marry is a good choice, but you're not married in God's eyes until before him you make that public declaration. You say, I will or I do. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. And so, but again, when you look at it in Matthew 13 and you look at the broad illustrations, again, it's always two groups of people. There's a dragnet that's thrown and you've got the good fish and the bad fish. There's tares such that you have uh, good wheat and bad wheat and so on. And so that's the point of each of the parables. And that, by the way, was the historical interpretation for nearly 2,000 years of church history, and some of the modern baloney that folks have come up with is just absolutely absurd. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. Okay, I think we've got time for one, maybe two more. An anonymous listener in Beaufort writes, my friend does not believe there will be a seven-year tribulation period because it doesn't specify that. When I read the book of Daniel and Revelation, I don't see it either, but I believe in the seven-year tribulation since I've been taught that. How can I show my friend that there will be seven years of tribulation? Well, it's really an armchair question, so I'm going to direct. I'll give you the quick answer, but if you're really serious in getting the full answer, then my attention, uh, I would direct your attention uh, to Daniel chapter 9, and I did four sermons in Daniel chapter 9, and three of them are in the final paragraph on what we typically refer to as the 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks, actually uh, 70 sevens, literally, as the marginal note, or 70 units of seven, 
have been decreed for your people. So you have Daniel, he's seeking the Lord in prayer. He's trying to understand what God's future is for Israel. And so the angel Gabriel tells him about this 70 weeks prophecy. And of course, um, each week stands for 70 years. So uh, each week stands for seven years. So we have, like in English, a week of days. But in Hebrew, there's also a week of years. And so the same term, by the way, is used for Jacob, who needs to work for seven years. But it's the same phrase. It's a week of years. You need to work for a week, for one week, which would be seven years. And so there's 70 sevens, and he divides the prophecy with a space in between. And the first part of the prophecy brings you to Palm Sunday, to the 173,880th day that was predicted by the prophet Daniel when a decree would go out to rebuild the city, that Messiah would come and present himself to Israel. And then it goes on to say that after that, he would be cut off. And so he presents himself on Palm Sunday, as we call it. And then by Friday, he's dead. And then there's a final week, a final seven years, which again, the book of Revelation makes. And so he speaks of this prince that is going to come who will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And so he goes past the 469 weeks and he comes to the final week, to the final seven years. And then he says in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wing of abominations. And so Jesus understood this final week to be in the future. He spoke in the Olivet Discourse of the abomination of desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel. We're in the middle of this week, in the middle of the seven years. The Antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple. He presents himself as God, and so he commits the abomination of desolation. And by the way, the same numbers are used by John when he refers to a half of the week, like 1,260 days or 42 months. So again, I walk through this very, very carefully. Go to download the Search the Scriptures app. Uh, You can go to the App Store, type in Search the Scriptures. It's .org and uh, get the one. Uh, get that particular app, click on the book of Daniel, listen to the last three sermons, and I walk, we'll walk you step by step by step through this amazing prophecy. So okay. good question. All right, we've got four minutes left. Then Sonia from Rinkin writes, I was recently saved after watching many of your sermons online and have moved to Georgia and hope to attend uh, CBC at least once a month. We do live, live an hour away. I know that we as saved people and the saints are called to share our faith with others, and I've recently started sharing my faith with my family. I feel especially called to share my faith with my sister who is gay. For many years, this fact about her has not bothered me, but now I'm concerned for her soul, and I can't bear the thought of her eternal torment. I feel as if she chose her lifestyle because of abuse we both suffered as children, as she's lost all trust in men. I struggle with how to share the plan of salvation with her and the need to repent of sin without deeply offending her. She is currently struggling to parent her two children with her female partner, and I don't want to throw her life into more turmoil because she thinks that I believe that she is living a life of sin. How can I approach this with her in a compassionate manner? 
I know how important this is, and I don't want to hesitate any longer because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Well, thank you, Sonia, for being concerned about your sister and wanting to love her unconditionally because God loves the sinner unconditionally. But our sin deserves judgment, and sin will ultimately bring not just physical death, but eternal death. But don't despair. Anyone can be saved. I would first direct you to my sermon that if you just go to YouTube and type in, is it okay to be gay, brogy, uh, you will have one of my longest sermons that's online. I think it's an hour and 20 minutes, and I go through every single time that homosexuality is addressed in the Old and the New Testament. So number one, you need to know what you're talking about because many people are taking the Bible and twisting the scriptures to say that it's okay to be gay or they're saying, well, it's okay to have this desire for someone of the same sex as long as you uh, do not act it out physically. And even there, those who say that say there are certain physical expressions that are okay And then there's one where you've crossed the line. So you, one, want to know what you're addressing, what you're speaking to. But let me give you some hope as I do in that sermon. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then the next verse says, such were some of you, but you were saved. That is to say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So Paul is just recounting the fact that there were quote unquote gay people, even male prostitutes, whom he found when he went to preach the gospel at Corinth and some repented and believed. Look, we've got people like that at Community Bible Church. They, they are they don't even want it to be known. They don't want people to know that this was their background and that uh, they were saved out of homosexuality. Some have shared it. Some just prefer not to. They don't want their kids to ever know. They don't want them to even have to process that thought in their minds as children. So just know that God can save anyone, and he does. But, you know, the most loving, compassionate thing to do is to tell someone the truth. And... When you speak the truth of homosexuality, you should always include, hey, look what God has saved me from. And when God looked at my sin, he saved me and forgave me. And in spite of the abuse that you think may have precipitated your sister's lifestyle, just remember that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so God can move in any situation and deliver your sister. So you keep praying for her and witnessing accordingly. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today here on Search the Scriptures Bible Live. 